Hello and welcome back to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me here in the studio, we have Spike's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us down the line, we have Spike columnist, Raki Vassan. Hello. Hello. Coming up on today's show, the police killing of Tyree Nichols, Rishi Sunak's first 100 days and Sam Smith and the nonsense of non-binary. So the funeral for Tyree Nichols was held in Memphis this week. The 29-year-old black man was brutalised, beaten to a pulp by five police officers, and he later succumbed to his injuries. Tom, there's a tendency when these horrible things happen to fold them immediately into a kind of narrative. Mm. Let's call it the BLM narrative that says it must all be down to white supremacy. Now, this case really doesn't lend itself to that, does it? It doesn't, but that hasn't stopped it being folded into that narrative. And I think that's been one of the quite shameful ways in which this story has been discussed. Because as you say, what you have here is an indefensible act of police brutality by mm. its purposes. Obviously, these, these people will, these officers will stand trial eventually, most likely. Um, they will no doubt defend their innocence. But a lot of people watching that video cannot help but feel that they acted in a not just brutal, but almost sadistic fashion. I yeah. mean, you know, there's some sort of traffic stop which is escalated almost immediately. Um, you know, Tyree Nichols being heard kind of shouting out almost confused and scared. You know, you lot are really doing a lot right now. I'm not really understanding why they're putting hands on him in the way that they are. He manages to get away and then they just, you know, wail on him, as you say. Later seems to succumb to his in- injuries. That should shock us enough. You know, yeah. that should be enough of a spur to talk about how do we make sure that people like this don't end up in the police force, um, where is this propensity for sadistic violence a, a, among a small, but nevertheless, you know, a quite dangerous proportion of American policing? Where is that coming from? How can that be curbed? It, what, you know, practices within the police force, what structures in society might be contributing to situations mm. in which this happens, which is rare, but is fairly regular in terms of them floating up in the news discussion. That's what a sane debate would turn on, and an important debate, one that could actually point towards some change. But of course, it hasn't turned on that. It's turned on basically this being presented as an, another example of white supremacist policing. The catch in this situation, of course, is that while Tyree Nichols was black, so were the five police officers involved in this alter- altercation. Yep. Um, there are some white officers as well who are also being investigated, I understand. But in terms of the people in the body cam footage there that night were all black. Memphis police chief is black. The police force is 58% black, which is only slightly below the black population. So those arguments you'd think wouldn't really wash. Yeah. And yet, if anything, there's been a desperation to make sure that it, it is folded into that narrative. People dismissing anyone who are, shall we say, a little bit perplexed by the idea that five black police officers beating a black member of the public is an act of white supremacy, just dismissed as not thinking hard enough, yeah. not doing the work. You don't understand how white supremacy and structural racism actually operate. You need to educate yourself. Exactly. That's essentially the form that it's taken. And I think that's really unpleasant. I mean, first of all, you're exploiting a horrible killing for Mm. political game, which should be shameful in any circumstances. You're also obscuring the nature of the issue. And this is a problem with the, we can get into this, but with the police brutality issue in general, it is not a strictly racial phenomenon in America. Um, And that desire to racialize it, I think has actually gotten in the way of constructive solutions and also sort of enough solidarity to deal with the particular issue. And I think the other thing is that it just does, it contributes to that kind of needless, um, division and divisiveness on this particular issue. Whereas given the fact that particularly young men of all pigmentations in America are well represented amongst people who can end up meeting a grisly end because of the police, 
this is an issue which you should be able to make, get broad-based support for reform, for pushing back, for change, yeah. etc. So it's it's shameful, really. I think, and what's but what's striking is that the narrative, capital N, capital T, capital N, you know, it can't even be dented in situations where the details don't match up to it. Whatever, that it will just plow on regardless. And if you challenge it, you're the problem. Yeah, Ricky, let's talk sort of generally about um, the narrative, so to speak. Um, this idea that um, black men are being targeted by the police, being you know, slain, possibly are victims of a kind of genocide, according to the somewhat more um, extreme voices uh, in this debate. I mean, is is that even true, even putting aside an obvious case like Tyree Nichols, where this isn't white supremacy? Well, the, the reality is when it comes to police uh, brutality in the United States, it involves perpetrators and victims of all races. And, and that's why I think that the debate needs to be shifted more towards policing culture and we need to get rid of this obsession with race. I find it quite remarkable that we have reached the day where left-wing activists are providing cover for five police officers for fatally brutalising a man, uh, talking about that they're part of white supremacist structures, um, that these black uh, police officers were seduced by uh, anti-black norms in policing. It doesn't have much of a high opinion of black people in general, I have to say those kind of narratives, that they can be so easily conditioned and manipulated into lethal acts of violence against a co-racial citizen. Uh, it, it almost dangerously uh, flirts with hard right narratives, which uh, offer the view, the dangerous view, that bl uh, the black race is of low intelligence, that it lacks uh, mental ability. So I think that some of these uh, narratives, uh, they are laughable, but they are, I think in some ways they're actually quite dangerous uh, as well, Fraser. The point that I'd make is that when you look at um, trust in the police, it's also very low in working class, um, predominantly white neighbourhoods mm. uh, in, the, in, the, in the United States, where there are many cases of police misconduct. So I think that what we need to do is look at um, the kinds of individuals who are being attracted to the profession. And if there aren't enough high quality candidates entering American policing, people with a strong moral character, sound sense of ethics, if you're not getting enough of those people, why is that the case? And if there are individuals with um, seriously problematic personality traits, um, brutally authoritarian uh, uh, traits uh, within their personality, um, narcissists essentially, who may even see policing as a way to unleash their aggression whilst being protected by their profession, um, then we need to look at pre-employment uh, psych psychological screening. To what extent are serving police officers um, subjected to regular main mental checks by an independent authority, which is separated from police departments. Those are the kind of debates we should be happen happening, uh, but I appreciate they may not be as glamorous and fashionable as the kind of identitarian chit-chat that we've seen mm. uh, since yeah. the death of Tory Nichols. And Tom, the BLM would say, well, actually, we have been calling for police reform. Mm. We've been calling for defunding of the police mm. or even abolishing the police was actually what um, where that argument started. People often like to forget that. Um, why is that not the way to go? Well, first of all, it's the way that no one wants. I think people have seen the consequences of it over the course of the past four or five or six years mm. where the call to defund the police, and even when it hasn't happened necessarily on a kind of policy level, the kind of pulling back 
of policing from particularly high crime communities. So obviously, there's very big problems with how those communities are policed. And yeah. I think in in the case of this Scorpion unit, which is the body to which these the unit to which these officers belonged, there these kind of you can see these kind of cultures develop where there's a kind of sense of almost, you know, there to sort of deal with this restive population rather yeah. than actually kind of policing um, people who are citizens in the community that you share and so on. Um, but again, you see the call out to defund the police and yet this is something, the consequences of that have been felt across the US in the wake of the Black Lives Matter riots and so mm. on. You know, there have, you know, soaring murder rates in many cities which had got that very much under control. Um, and also this is something that's borne out by the polling and people's experience because people in inner city neighbourhoods, African-Americans, they're not in favour of defunding the police. It's the, you, you see this in poll after poll, it's the college educated, yeah. it's the people who are better off who um, are probably least likely to have bad experiences with the police and yet <laughs> want them to be defunded and so on. And yet the people who are probably more likely to have had some stories, had some run-ins, had some genuinely negative things, still recognise that policing is important, especially yeah. if you live in a, in a high crime environment. So that's obviously not the right, right way to go. I mean, also, it's the sort of thing where I kind of feel like the primary purpose of Black Lives Matter now, however we want to define that as a kind of nebulous movement is just to defend the narrative to yeah. maintain the narrative to maintain this idea in people's heads that there is this thing called white supremacy which is effectively kind of permanent stain on america and much of the west that you can't get away from it that even if you can't see it in certain situations mm -hmm. it's definitely there so change either way seems almost um not that important to them <laughs> you know it's, <laughs> yeah. that's kind of the main the main driver of this and i think it's worth saying because you know one can easily be accused of focusing on the extreme voices in a particular debate mm. you know the sort of person who gets booked to go on good morning britain to talk about this and talk utter nonsense but you were talking there about this narrative this false narrative that it's effectively sort of open season on young black men in america open season i believe is the title of the book written by one benjamin crump yeah. who is the lawyer who's representing tyree nichols's family representing george floyd's family many other families as well this is someone who is intimately involved in these cases really at the heart of this of um, the litigation and so on and yet he is someone who will openly kind of fan the flames of division on that particular point. So it's not a, it's not a, uh, a fringe perspective, shall we say. And you do wonder as well just how it get kind of, this has taken hold, even though it kind of flies in the face of evidence and the data. I mean, there's been yeah. a lot of studies now, you know, landmark one in 2016 at Harvard by Roland Fry finding that if you control for all variables, you know, Black people are no more likely to be shot by police than white people. You also hear this refrain, I couldn't imagine this happening the other way. You know, I, this was in a Van Jones piece yeah. on CNN this week. I couldn't imagine a bunch of um, black police officers beating up a white citizen in this particular way. And you hear that in relation to every essentially kind of instance of police brutality. I couldn't imagine this happening to a white person. And yet many of the big cases of deadly police brutality that we've all heard about and been shot by often have kind of white counterparts in yeah. eerily similar circumstances. So with George Floyd, it was Tony Timper, a guy who was, yeah. again, pinned to the floor, knee on his back, who ended up, again, um, being killed as a consequence of that. There was um, a, a gentleman whose name I forget in Maryland who was killed in a no-knock raid like a couple of days before Breonna Taylor was. So yeah. there is all of these kinds of cases that bubble up. And yet, they, again, they can't dent the narrative. They get a fraction of the attention. Mm. And that's not to say, why aren't we paying attention to the white people? But it's to say that what you have here is 
broadly speaking, not exclusively, but broadly speaking, a kind of class problem yeah. in America and a problem, as Raki was saying, of policing culture. And racialising it is quite possibly the worst thing that could have poss- could have ever happened in terms of actually getting to the roots of it and sorting it out. Mm-hmm. And Rakib, finally, I mean, there is this tendency to racialise just about everything in society today. I mean, how do we sort of break out of that um, impasse? Well, it'd be very difficult. Uh, I do think uh, we ourselves represent a cultural counter challenge to that. Uh, I think that much of the contemporary left, uh, both in the United States and in the UK as well, they need to rediscover their passion for challenging class-based barriers. Mm. And and I think that's something that's been a particular weakness in recent times. Uh, Tom talks about the fact that the the, the sort of brutalising policing culture in the United States affects many uh, working-class neighbourhoods across the United States with, with different um, ethnic and racial uh, demographic profiles. So I, I also think that in the in the UK, we've seen many people treat a range of racial and ethnic disparities as direct byproducts of racial discrimination. And I, and I think that what we need to do um, as, as a counter challenge is look at the myriad of uh, social cultural and economic factors at play and demonstrate the fact that this is uh, essentially um, examining, well, I I, I say the term examining, um, is is ultimately looking at issues through an incredibly reductive prism of race. So Rishi Sunak has survived his first 100 days in office. He's at least, um, he's doubled the time managed by his predecessor, Liz, Liz Truss, which is Damn one positive. faint praise. <laughs> one, <laughs> one positive, I guess. Um, Tom, when Rishi came to power, when he was appointed as our prime mm. minister, not elected, um, we were told that he was going to get a grip on things, that the adults were back in the room. It was going to bring an end to some of the Tory scandals that dogs previous prime ministers. It was going to put the economy on the right track. I mean, how's that prognosis sounding now? Not great. Uh, not least when you had the the sort of economic indicators we're looking at now. I mean, you don't have to believe the recent IMF forecast to realise that we're in a, a bit of a hole. Yeah. And also, there's no clear way out of it you know there is this kind of hunker down mentality this idea that any doing anything too bold in any direction is a bad idea right now because of the economic headwinds that they talk about as if they're kind of acts of god Mm. um and because of the mess that was left by the mini budget and so on you have a kind of real downbeat sense of not really having a grip on the situation just basically responding to events i think it's interesting how when um you know, when inflation was soaring not too long ago, again, politicians were blaming this all on external events. Now that it's projected to fall by half, Rishi Sunak is presenting that as a goal that he himself will bring about. Yeah. You know, that's something that, that's, that's <laughs> one of his target. five big targets. Exactly. Yeah. So you just really see a kind of muddling through. It's the, It feels like it's, economically speaking, it feels like it's the most explicit version of what basically successive British governments have been doing for a long time, which is not tackling the fundamental problems, not tackling mm. the issues of productivity, not not um, working out how to actually bring growth back to the country. Like this it's he's almost like the the most just the kind of purest expression of that bureaucratic, technocratic muddling through mm. no big vision. All we've got to do is navigate these difficult waters as best we possibly can. And I think he's paying the price for it. I mean, I don't think that Labour are rising in the polls because Keir Starmer is a wonderfully passionate 
interesting, dynamic individual with a clear plan for the country. Mm. Um, it's He's making the most out of not just how the Tories have been blown apart by successive scandals and so on, but also the fact that in Liz Truss's and Boris Johnson's successor, they have this sort of non-entity, yeah. really. And even though Starmer's a non-entity as well, in the battle of the non-entities, he's easily winning at this point. <laughs> uh, Rakeem, let, let's talk a little bit about the polls because they're pretty disastrous for um, Rishi Sunak. I mean, particularly it seems as if um, the red wall that people have um, shown a lot of interest in, you know, who, the, the Tories famously won over at the last election. This is not a government that's that's going to keep them on side, is it? Unlikely. Unlikely, if truth be told. I, I remember um, after the December 2019 general election, I wrote a piece for us here at Spiked, which talked about how the Tories had done so well mm. in traditional former coal mining communities. Mm. Um, and I thought that the, the big thing about um, our post-Brexit project, I wanted to see an active industrial strategy. Uh, so something about really uh, bolstering British manufacturing, which has really suffered um, in recent decades, um, being a lot of communities being faced with the harsh winds of globalisation, communities that have been hollowed out um, and have suffered it's quite severe forms of industrial decline. I just don't see any of that from the Conservative Party, if truth be told. They, they talk a great deal about levelling up the country. Whatever the hell that means, mm. uh, it's just. It, it, but this was actually the flagship policy of of the Johnson government, and it's just nowhere to be seen. So, so I do think that the the Conservative Party they had this golden opportunity to uh, embed, you could say, this uh, sort of almost multi ethnic, cross class, pro Brexit coalition, and uh, the project hasn't really gone according to plan. Uh, that's largely because. The Conservative Party, in my view, they're quite reluctant to uh, come up with a policy agenda which would be supported by those working class communities. If truth be told, I think they very they find it very difficult to represent those communities. Yeah. It just doesn't come naturally to them uh, at all. But as we as we've seen, there's been a great deal of incompetence. Uh, the government has suffered from many scandals as well. Uh, and the current Prime Minister, congratulations for him reaching 100 days. His predecessor didn't come even close to that. But as Tom says, he's not the most inspirational character. I'm not sure if he can really get people going. And I don't think if he can get people, um, his organisational foot soldiers, local Tory councillors, I don't think he'll be able to get them going either. So the, the, the forthcoming general election is not looking good for the Conservative Party, mm. if truth be told. Yeah, Tom, it's almost as if, it's funny because Rishi Sunak did support Brexit. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he's on record as doing that. But he, as a figure, he almost is the, the antithesis of the Brexit mm -hmm. spirit. He is this kind of dry managerial technocrat. Yeah. No, completely. And he's, he's someone who doesn't seem to understand that the thing that was brilliant about Brexit, not just as a kind of strategic decision for the UK, not mm. just as a decision about where, how are we going to relate to our near neighbours and what sort of trade are we going to focus on? But yeah. as effectively a kind of populist democratic project, of course that's not something that he's on board with. Of course that's not <laughs> something that sets his blood racing. It's not entirely clear what does set his blood racing. Yeah. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes Rishi Sunak quite inspiring, uninspiring figure is the fact that he doesn't really have much in the way of ideology. Mm. Um, it was interesting, obviously, he had his interview with 
Piers Morgan last night um, and he really struggles to project any sense of authority whatsoever. Now yeah. you could say that that's just about him as an individual, you know, some people aren't good public speakers or some people aren't particularly bullshit public speakers or whatever, but I think a lot of that stems from the fact, what does he actually stand for? Yeah. You know, I think when he was asked what is Sunakism, he was like, I want people to feel proud in their country, which is fair enough, but mm. who can really disagree with that, apart from some people in the Labour Party, maybe, They're, you know, the, or general kind of things about, I'm here to get us back on track, I'm here to make things better. So it's this kind of... He likes of, families as well. He likes families, he likes maths, nice this thing, is about, yeah. uh, he wants to make Britain Silicon Valley, these are the few components that we understand. <laughs> but it's, beyond that, you do just get this kind of sense that if you, if you don't really stand for anything, it's very difficult for you to be a dynamic politician and yeah. to bring people with you and to hold on to um, constituencies at your party very, you know, one handily at the, at the last election, but in a way that was always something that you had to cement, yeah. that you had to kind of make real. So I think a lot of his problems do stem from the fact that he doesn't really stand for anything. And I think the problem that British politics is in at the moment is that on the other side, you also have a kind of a similar figure. You know, there is it. we're back to sort of the Labour and the Tories, however much they want to upfront, you know, Tory sleaze and whatever in a slightly pantomimic sort of fashion. They are back to dancing on the head of a pin, yeah. really. And that's really quite depressing because, again, one of the great things about Brexit was that period just after the vote when you felt like both parties were about to collapse, <laughs> where it felt like there was space for something a bit different, something yeah. a bit new, where it felt like in the months and years afterwards that at least the existing political parties we, we had would have to respond to this yeah. and realise that those days of choosing between competing flavours of blancmange and sparkling or still was the best that you could possibly do was over. It does feel like we've reset mm. back to you know like factory setting yeah. again, which is quite depressing. And I also think it's it's depressing because of the fact that those political elites have proven themselves completely incapable of dealing with the crises of our time mm. and crises which are getting worse by the day. It feels like. And finally, let's move on to Sam Smith. So Smith came out as non-binary in 2019. Um, until recently, that essentially meant him using they, them pronouns and refusing to be recognised as male in various music industry awards. But this week, um, in the form of his video for I'm Not Here To Be Friends, we got a glimpse of what Sam Smith sees as an authentic expression of non-binary identity. So Sam Smith looking very glamorous in um, a sort of sequined outfit. His nipples covered in, in tassels. There's a bit of water sports going on as well. Rakeeb, um What's your reaction to to this? Um, does it help you understand uh, Sam Smith's non-binary identity? I'm not interested in knowing about Sam Smith's non-binary identity and non-binary, <laughs> to be honest, are fed up. Um, I've seen very sm very short clips of this uh, music video. It's just, but it's just like many music videos. There's just a great deal of degeneracy involved, if truth be told. It's very cringeworthy. I, thought, I do find it um, distasteful. But I think it really does show that, you know, with this whole, you know, non-binary, transgender, all this and that and all the rest of it, um, th they have incredibly high levels of power and influence within the entertainment industry. Mm. That's the truth of it. And I think what you'll actually see as time goes on, there's going to be a growing disconnect between the wider population um, and the entertainment industry more generally. Um, I've really switched off, to be honest, um, if, if, if truth be told, especially when it comes to, to, to this kind of material, um, if you could call it that. Um, but but I, I do feel that when you're looking at these kind of dynamics at play, I just think that it really shows that 
you know, the kind of disconnect between someone like a Sam Smith and probably your average Brit when it comes to these kind of issues and matters of identity. I mean, Tom, doesn't it just kind of show up that, you know, non-binary isn't really meaningful in any sense? It's Mm. I, it was, it's hard to glean particular lessons. I mean, of course, the non-binary thing is is fascinating, not least because of people's willingness to go along with it. Yeah. Know, if Sam Smith can identify however he wants, he can identify as a, a three-wheel van, as a as a canary, as whatever he wants. That's yeah. that's completely up to him. But the willingness of people not only to go along with that, to accept that not only can a man become a woman, but a man can become a plural, is 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 something entirely yeah. different. And I thought it was very interesting this week that um, you know you had Richard Madeley of all people, <laughs> um, you know, a, a sort of a messenger for a simpler era. It feels yeah. like on Good Morning Britain having to profusely apologise because he referred to Sam Smith as he, and then also to another, I understand it, non-binary guest on the show as she. Yeah. Um, just acknowledging the fact that Sam Smith is male and this guest was female, like th- this is the sort of point that we've we've ended up in. And on the point of it being kind of culturally shocking, whatever. I think there was one particular tweet which said, you know, no one got upset about like a prayer, no one got upset yeah. about wrecking ball, no one got upset about WAP, even though people got upset about all of those things. Yeah, because you know, <laughs> which is quite funny. But there's also a kind of element of this. This stuff, in a sense, really isn't daring whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the kind of raunch, the kind of um, uh, controversy stirring sort of gay pop music of, of the recent past and so on um first of all a lot of it was a lot better than what sam smith is making you know i think if anything you know his music was never up to much snuff but i think yeah. there is a kind of element of this is all he's got now is mm. you know kind of fighting his culture war yeah. as it were to be addressed with the pronouns that he wishes to be addressed he, to. he used to dress like quite plainly just mm. in a normal suit you know look like your next door neighbor or something yeah he's been on a journey yeah as we all have um but so it's it's not necessary it's if anything is kind of the pose is not kind of two fingers up to society it's kind of i dare you not to go along with this and i think the treatment of richard madeley is a good example of that because you know sam smith is an interesting cultural phenomenon to the extent that everything has to kind of bow down around him you know he he effectively is credited with dissolving the um gender categories at the Brit Awards, for instance. Yeah. You know, he um, again, heads will roll on national television if people refer to him not in the quote-unquote wrong pronouns. You know, it feels like every newspaper almost instantly and instinctively have gone along with the they thing mm. without giving it a moment's thought. So it's not kind of a sense of rebellion, of pushing back, of being a bit outrageous, but also creating great culture at the same time. The culture such as it is, is kind of naff and a bit odd. And it's not, It's kind of just daring you to disagree with it rather yeah. than actually pushing at any boundaries. If anything, it's kind of suggesting all of the boundaries have kind of been dissolved. Mm. And how do you push back against anything in those kinds of circumstances? So whilst, of course, you can understand, you know, the sort of simulated golden shower, the raunch, yeah. et cetera, you know, people, you know, people are going to see that as inappropriate, particularly for young people, understandably so. But there's also a way in which it's kind of not, that daring at yeah. the same time because this is the sort of thing that we're expected to celebrate mm. and if you dare not celebrate it or not like it then you've got everything that's coming to you that's the kind of culture that he operates in that it feels like and okay you know we know with the you're alluding to the sort of power of the the trans movement um mm. it seems as if um new historical figures are being turned into trans or non-binary as well it's not just people declaring themselves to be non-binary but we've heard recently uh, claims from academics that perhaps Jesus Christ was non-binary or trans. 
or Joan of Arc um, was presented as non-binary um, in a recent play at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Again, that had the sort of backing of, of, of academics. Queen Elizabeth I has been spoken of as a sort of non-binary uh, figure. I mean, what do you what do you make of that? You know, this kind of reaching back into the past and declaring people to have this identity that seemingly was invented only five minutes ago. I'm I'm just at a loss. <laughs> I, I really am. I, I think that in the case of Jesus Christ, um, it was someone suggesting that a wound that he had suffered as, as resembled female genitalia, so there's a possibility that he has some kind of trans identity. Um, I think there's a point that I made on one of our previous podcasts. I'm very glad that no one said that about Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. <laughs> the, backlash that, the backlash to that would have really been something. Um, but but I think it shows. I think it shows a real desperation uh, in a way, and I think it's 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 actually it's a form of historical revisionism. Uh, in, in a sense, so I just, I just think that the radical uh, transgender movement, I, it, it doesn't, uh, for me, it doesn't bring anything good to the table. Uh, quite the opposite, it's, it's beginning to delve into matters of history, looking to um, ultimately uh, change just a, 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 our basic understanding of so, social order when it comes mm. to matters of identity. Um, I thought that um, Ella Whelan. Uh, one of our one of our columnists here. I thought she was fantastic on Question Time, really pushing back on radical transgenderism, talking about the integrity the integrity of sensitive female only spaces, and it's also very important that it poses a threat to women's sports as well. And I think that we've seen that in recent mm. times. Mm. So I'm glad to see that the counter challenge to that is gathering pace, and long may that continue. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.